Welcome to Tipping Point, a new podcast from Merger Market, where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most in the world of M&A. I'm your host, Tom Kane, broadcasting from the Windy City. Well, I'm delighted to welcome onto the show today, Bill Curtin, who's the Global Head of Mergers and Acquisitions at Hogan Lovells, based in Washington, D.C. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Tom, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on here, Bill, especially at um, a time like this when we're seeing unprecedented disruptions. I'm sure that's been in the case in your day-to-day as well. You know, how, how are things with you? Hopefully, first of all, you're, you're healthy and, and safe, and, and so is your family. Um, I appreciate that, Tom. Yes, we are, and I hope you and yours are as well. Likewise, we are. Thank you for, thank you for your, your support and kind words there. Um, just wanted to kind of check in with you, Bill, to see you know what the last seven days or so have been like. Um, the last seven to ten days or so have been like, and could you take us through a day in the life of a corporate lawyer at a time like this? You know, what have you been, you know, what have you been advising clients, and what's been taking up your, your time on a day to day? Well, you know, it's really interesting, Tom. Um, We're in a situation now that's unprecedented and is sideways, to put it euphemistically. I I describe my – if you think about the context, we're we're a remarkable uh, species insofar as we really live in the present. Just 10 days ago, as you noted, Tom, right, on March 9th, um, we found ourselves in a situation where we had remarkable uh, value and volume running through the M&A markets – uh, and the capital markets as well. We were really surging, notwithstanding the, uh, you know, regrettable circumstances around COVID-19 in Asia and creeping into Europe. Largely, the United States M&A was moving along at quite a clip. And boy, do we find ourselves in a different position now, as you say, just 10 days later, where the daily life for, for an M&A practitioner such as myself is um, a mix of triage and preservation of the transactions that we've worked so hard on the past months, weeks, months, and and even in some cases over multiple years putting these transactions together. We find ourselves now, Tom, um, preserving those transactions, uh, positioning those transactions and safeguarding them as best we can for their resumptive success when uh, hopefully sooner rather than later um, the situation abates and we can resume, resume something like life is normal for M&A lawyers. Right. I mean, we've done a lot, quite a lot of reporting on, on deals that are out there in the market, deals that we're about to launch. Um, we're finding that a lot of the time it's on a case-by-case. Obviously, there are, there are some deals that, that are you know, unlikely to have a big delay. Others that, that were ongoing are okay. So, I mean, what do you, what do you see? Do you agree with that assessment? Is it a case-by-case? And where are you seeing issues and where are you seeing deals conversely that, that are likely to, to get through this difficult period? I think that's right, Tom. I, I think we've got categories in our, in, our, in our sort of daily fare right now in the mergers and acquisitions world. We've got, we've got circumstances where we have transactions that were in formation but not yet under contract, right? Those are the transactions where parties are engaged in the due diligence. They're engaged in valuation exercises. They're in the midst of negotiating and putting together the terms upon which they want to transact, right? There's that, 
the world of those transactions, which are pre-binding contract, right? They haven't yet gone on under a definitive agreement that locks the parties into moving forward with the transaction. Then you have another world of of arrangements where we are under contract, right? And our, we have a buyer and a seller and, a, and an asset set of assets that are going to move hands between, you know, ch change hands between the buyer and the seller. Um, and, and in those circumstances, the parties have already conducted their due diligence and they've set their valuation and they've programmed the integration measures and mechanics that they expect to see unfold. And that's a world that we're working with as well. What happens to those existing transactions that are under contract? And then there's the third world, right? The third, I should say, category, which is um, M&A transactions that have been recently accomplished. And you have buyers trying to integrate those assets into their empires, right? And put those assets into healthy credit arrangements and steward their new employees as part of the, their greater empire and ensure that they're receiving the return on investment that they had expected to receive when they modeled these transactions in a pre-COVID-19 world. So you can get a feel just there, right, Tom, from three very different sets of circumstances in sort of the different types of M&A that, that are in front of us and a whole host of issues that are separate and distinct for each of those three different categories of deals. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you advising buyers at the moment, say a buyer that was, was interested in a deal, um, you know, in a markedly different world a couple of weeks ago, are they, you know, what's your advice to them? And conversely, what about those companies that were looking to sell uh, at that time? You know, what, you know, talk me through that a bit. Right. A new, a new landscape today, right? A new landscape. Mm -hmm. So, so now whether we're sell side or buy side, our team at Hogan Levels looks at these mergers and acquisitions. These are non-organic growth uh, um, circumstances. These are M&A is largely about on the sell side, a seller deciding that an asset is not a core asset and wishes to divest from that asset, concentrate their resources in other areas, and a buyer believing that the buyer through the acquisition can profit and proliferate and succeed more expeditiously and more fulsomely in a more fulsome manner than they could through organic growth, right? And so we have to work with the buyer and with the seller from their perspectives and their ambitions now in a landscape under COVID-19 and its results is very different. Valuation multiples are different. The extent to which multiple bidders might be pursuing an asset is likely going to be diminished. The sense for a seller of feeling like a transaction even under contract is fully secure may be different. The notion of a buyer being able to secure adequate levels at, of financing, adequate amounts of financing at costs of financing that are tolerable to a buyer and work in a buyer's acquisition model, different again, the way that a buyer does due diligence and the way that a seller responds to due diligence. It's quite remarkable and unprecedented the circumstances we find ourselves in because this isn't just a slight shifting or a, a momentary tweaking that I think we're experiencing. I think we have a sustained um, and, and perhaps even prolonged altering of the M&A landscape right now in terms of what we're looking at and how we're dealing with all those different issues. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look back over the last couple of years, you know, pre-COVID-19, uh, we're constantly being told that valuations are way too high 
at the same time, there's, there's so much money out there in the market chasing too few targets and at attractive valuations. So from that perspective, that has changed dramatically over the last couple of weeks. You know, where, there's no where question about now? that. Yeah. You're yeah. exactly right. There's no question but that this is resetting valuations. And now what will happen? We have this world of the sponsors, the PE firms that have tremendous amounts of capital on hand. Their first and acute focus, I expect, in the days and weeks to come will be to secure the um, condition of their por existing portfolio companies. They're going to want to, they're in the tr process already of ensuring that there's adequate credit, the credit facilities are, you know, sound, and that their existing assets, right, are in good, as good as possible <laughs> condition for, to weather this storm. Having, having accomplished that, the amount of capital that those sponsors have to now go out into the markets and capitalize on, as you say, Tom, reduced valuations, right? Let's see the extent to which the sponsors move, as many of them did in 2007 and 2008 and the aftermath thereof, particularly in the technology sector. I think as we watch the performance of the various capital markets and exchanges going forward, I think we'll see that the NASDAQ and the technology-centric space lifts a bit more than the S&P will, because I believe that M&A actors, sponsors and strategics alike, will be looking not tomorrow, not next week. It's going to take a little bit of time to sort of get back up and stand up again here. But after the assets are secured, the credit facilities are in place as best as possible to, secure, to safeguard existing assets. I think there's an opportunity here with the resetting of valuations to the extent that credit remains available to support transactional activities. Right. And, you know, that, that brings us on to you know, looking ahead. Uh, as you say, there, there will be opportunities in a, in a post-COVID-19 world as, as things settle. Technology, I mean, everyone's working from home. Anything that caters to remote working right now is, is being talked about, um, meal delivery, education. Where do you see opportunities? I mean, how, you know, you, you talk about how different the world looks now. Um, let's kind of cast a glance even further forward, six, 12 months down the line. You know, what changes do you see that, uh, that could present opportunities for, for sponsors or, or strategic buyers? Well, I think agility and agility taking is form through technology. You know, we at Hogan Levels, we represent our clients across 10 industry sectors, you know, ranging from transportation to life sciences to energy and natural resources. The common thread that has emerged in recent years as part of the remarkable uh, upward ascent in value and volume of M&A has been technology, right? It's been technology in the financial institutions. Um, it's been technology in trans transportation and life sciences. And I think if there's anything we take from COVID-19, it is our in an increasingly interconnected and global village, right? Wuhan province, right? Sure feels pretty proximate to Chicago right now, doesn't it, Tom? <laughs> when you it think does. about yeah. it, it feels proximate, right? Wuhan 
feels like it's next door to Chicago in this interconnected global world as COVID-19 very differently than SARS, very differently, where SARS hit what was then the sixth largest economy in the world in the PRC, and now COVID-19 hits the second largest economy in the, in the world, and now the first, the second being China, and of course the first being the United States has now hit. And as we think about that, what is, what is the principal lesson learned? It's really the importance of having technology and being nimble and being reactive. Uh, to have the healthcare infrastructure, to have the transportation infrastructure, to have the delivery, as you say, Tom, of goods and services. How do the Amazons of the world support the demands that have been placed on it? How do we get to supermarkets the necessary essentials? How does, as we've heard in the news this past week, Honeywell and 3M and other market-leading companies get the specially manufactured masks how do we get the ventilators into our healthcare systems, right? That's all going to turn, in my view, going forward on enhanced technologies and more expedient delivery models to market. And I think we're going to see more and more transactional activity, Tom, in, in, along the currents of technology because transactional activity is non-organic growth. It is where you don't have the time or the luxury, or you believe you don't, want to spend the, the internal funds or time and resources to develop technology and product and service yourself from your own means. And instead, you transact to acquire more talent, more technology, more know-how, and more resource. I think we're going to find increasingly companies pulling together and looking for opportunities through M&A to acquire more technology, whether it's in life sciences, financial institutions, energy, transportation, any of the sectors that run through our economies. Yeah, I mean, we were talking the other day, Bill, and, and you were um, saying that 9-11 you know, changed the way culturally, you know, as a society, we, we traveled, you know, and made, made us aware that the global terror was a concern and, and change, really changed the way we traveled. This epidemic, this pandemic, could change the way we interact as a society, whether it be you know, through business, uh, through uh, interactions with, with people in a, you know, in a setting, for example. So do you see uh, an impact on the way that society behaves? And if so, I mean, what kind of technologies do you think in particular are going to be really important over the coming years that we'll see that growth story? Yeah, it's a great point, Tom, frankly. I, I would say two things. I would just say in dicta, as we say as lawyers, aside from the, most, the, the particulars of your question, I hope that as a civil matter, this experience is going to help us interpersonally and remind us that so-called differences and divisions really are not uh, differences and divisions. Uh, the desires and hopes and wishes uh, right for your family, my family, our friends in the PRC, the continental Europe, and that we're all aligned. And I hope that that will be one of the ways forward out of COVID-19. In terms of business, I think that the imperative here is we're going to need to find a way 
after we've sort of absorbed this, I think to some extent, the business community is still recovering from the shock of COVID-19, right? There's been a shock to the systems, to the capital markets, to the Federal Reserve acting on a Sunday night in the United States of America, right? There's just telling signals that we've incurred a shock to the business systems in which we in which we operate. And I think I hope sooner or later we're going to move from the place of absorbing the shock, Tom, to developing ways through again technology from our homes, from our communities, from remote places around the world to continue to propel economies to um, buttress important industries and to and to and to reinforce companies that are so important to our lifestyles whether you're uh, you know a, a, an airplane carrier that chooses Boeing predominantly or chooses Airbus predominantly it's important um, for those companies to make it through COVID-19 and to come through it and to come back. And I venture to say that the folks at Airbus would say that about Boeing and the folks at Boeing would say that about Airbus. And so I think to your point, after we've absorbed this shock and sort of picked ourselves up after the sponsors have ensured that their portfolio companies are okay, after the strategics have confirmed that they have the lines of credit they need to be able to move through circumstances where their manufacturing plants have been suspended in order to not allow the spread of contagion. Sooner than later, I hope that we learn and see and develop the skills from this terrible experience to be able to continue to transact and to commercially support the successes and welfare of of populations at large. Right. So to sum up right now, in terms of the impact on M and A, you know, after dislocation, people scrambling around to assess, you know, which deals can happen or not, you know, what people need to be doing just to get through this this period. And then as private equity firms work through with their portfolio companies, make sure that they, they're they okay um, from a leverage standpoint, et cetera. You know, then we'll look, go into a, a cycle where people look to take advantage of the, the opportunities that are out there. So we've talked a lot about technologies. There are a lot of companies that, that will be in trouble as well. That will lead to distressed opportunities. Um, mm -hmm. How do you see that playing out? Do you see that being you know, primarily sponsor-driven, strategic-driven, or, or a bit of both? I think it'll be a bit of both, Tom, and I think there is absolutely no question there is going to be, um, uh, as M&A uh, sort of you know, returns, um, I think there's going to be significant transactional activity around in the distressed M&A space, right, where whether as part of supply chains or standalones, companies that want to continue and want to remain viable but recognize that they find themselves in either too nascent or too much of a mezzanine position need the backbone, need the foundational strength and support of a multinational strategic, right? Or the sophistication and experience and efficacy that can come from having uh, an investment and ownership through a private equity firm. 
I think we're going to see increasingly that distressed M&A really is um, renamed effectively as opportunistic M&A, right? I think distressed M&A carries too much of a negative connotation to it. And I think as we look at H2, I hope, H2 of 2020, but certainly moving into 2021, I want to be optimistic there for sure. I think we're going to see a lot more opportunity there where the core of a business, remember, is very sound, right? The core of the business, the balance sheet was sound, the business plan looked good, the strategic direction, the talent in the executive suite, it was just check, 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 but then the perfect storm hit uh, very imperfectly uh, to the detriment of otherwise sound companies. Those companies should not go out of existence. And those companies will welcome the, that through the avenue of M&A, right, they can continue either as a portfolio company of a, of a sponsor or as a very important component to a multinational strategic that wants to steward those employees and those assets to continuing viability and even prosperity going forward. So I'd like to see, I expect to see a lot of activity in that space, whether it'll be H2 this year, Tom, or it'll pick back up more meaningfully in Q1, 21. That remains, those projections are beyond our reach right now. But I think it'll occur, and I, and I hope it'll be viewed much more as opportunistic or type of symbiotic M&A than, than any of the other connotations that, that are suggested by distressed. Right. In terms of those opportunistic opportunistic M&A deals that we might see, the obvious sectors right now have been travel, restaurants, right. restaurants, et cetera. I mean, do you expect any other industries that to come under stress the longer the impact of COVID-19 goes on? I mean, what, what, what areas are you looking at? Yeah, I think, I think we will see more than that. I think you mentioned the right ones, leisure and entertainment, right? Uh, hotels, um, uh, travel oriented, right? Those are obvious, those are not surprisingly ones that come to mind immediately. But even in the more traditional, I think that the supply chain relationships are going to be reviewed very carefully because what I think will be interesting here, Tom, is when the major um, uh, industrial multinationals feel as though the acute health care circumstances are beyond, you know, we've moved past them. Well, it's not, for them to reactivate their businesses is not a light switch, right? It's not as if they walk into their factories, hit the switch, and boy, they're running full capacity within, you know, an hour or two. They're so dependent, first, on supply chains with multiple links to that, and second, they're so dependent globally, right? Because those multinationals, as they look to be as efficient and economical as possible, are sourcing product from Mexico and South America and China and Vietnam, right? Malaysia. And so these supply chains are quite long. And so when we think about transactional uh, opportunities, right? Opportunistic M&A, and you, you drew us to the right place, Tom, you think about multinationals say, well, wait a minute, once we move past this acute health scare, we then found ourselves compromised, right, for some period of weeks or even months as we waited to see the supply chain 
come back together. So I wouldn't be surprised. This is just sort of my view, Bill Curtin speaking. I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the multinationals saying, for circumstances where we think there's really uh, an acute need to, to have our chain working, we may bring some of those pieces in-house into our empire rather than re um, relying on third-party relationships. That's a really interesting point. We've talked a lot about the acquirers, the opportunities that the sponsors and strategics might see on the horizon. What about those companies that might be under stress themselves, uh, that might you know, need to raise money to assuage any balance sheet concerns? Do you think we'll see more disposals, companies obviously looking to sell potentially themselves or, or, or units that, that uh, are non-core? What about companies doing discounted equity raises in the markets? I mean, what kind of measures do you expect us to see in the coming months? Well, it's a tough one there, right? Because in that circumstance, right, I have two sisters and a brother, and they're on a group string with me, and they debate every day whether the market's gone low enough that they should be selling or buying or holding on or where do they go. If you're sell-side right now, and you believe you have an asset that's not core, right? Are you prepared to initiate a sale process now, right, Tom, where you think your valuation will suffer, right? And your process might be slower. And so you're effectively not in an optimal circumstance under which to effectuate your sell-side process, right? Either for value purposes, or efficiency purposes, or or for transaction certainty purposes, all of which are very important to a seller embarking on non-core non divestitures. On the other hand, you don't necessarily find yourself in the luxurious position <laughs> of waiting to transact in an optimized scenario, right? And so my sell-side clients and those of ours at Hogan, we we think about you know, what is, you know, trying not to make perfection an outcome, the enemy of a practically successful, practically good result. And so I, I think that we are, will see a resumption of sell-side activities because I don't think clients will feel as though they have the luxury in any way more than my siblings have the luxury of knowing when to time the sale, you know, there's, there's the, the selling of their um of their equity positions, of their stock portfolios. I think sell-side companies are going to need to think about transacting in the best way they can in the given moment and not trying to wait this out and hope for better days with higher valuations and easier processes. Right. Well, thanks, Bill. That's uh, covered a lot of ground there. So beyond the immediate disruption and what's happening at the moment, it sounds like there, there should be opportunities as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Bill, for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure speaking to you. And um, I hope that you stay healthy and stay safe throughout this time. That's my wish for you too, Tom. A, a, a real pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks for listening to Tipping Point the show where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most on the world of M&A. Please subscribe and share, rate and like, and follow us on social media to get updates for the next episode.